I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60. Isaiah 60, and then the sermon notes from your bulletin uh, you will want to have handy as well. As you find your way to those locations, uh, I would I would love to, to chat with you for just a couple of moments about some church-related issues, okay? So, uh, boy, information to come your way, and I think, I think good for all of us as we step into our time in God's Word. I think that helps us uh, place what all we're going to talk about here. If you were at our annual meeting in mid-May, you heard me talk about some opportunities that God is bringing us as a church that we want to step into, and specifically... Over the last several months, uh, not connected with one another, two different churches in our community, uh, broader Tacoma community, have reached out to us asking for help, both in a similar place of of difficulty and size, pastors retiring and moving on, and that each of those churches in a place where they looked ahead and and would have a hard time seeing a future. And both of them, disconnected from one another, got a hold of us. And just to talk about, you know, ways that, I mean, if, if we had any interest in helping, one of those we have been able to follow up with a lot. And in fact, um, last Sunday, we had several of our families who will be a core group begin attending there. And today is their pastor's last Sunday. And next Sunday, our team will be there beginning ministry. So it's going to be uh, Sunset Bible North, but that's not the name of it. It's called Central Bible. And they're kind of across the street, kitty corner from Wilson, what used to be Wilson High School. Now it's Silas. So Central Bible, uh, over the course of this summer, we're going to begin ministry together. Uh, Beginning July 3rd, our sermon series, our preaching will will connect. So in both campuses, we'll be preaching the same text. And that's our plan moving forward into the fall as well. Uh, During the fall months, if you would like to visit there, as long as we don't all go at once, (laughs) it would be fine for you to do that. Their worship service is 10 o'clock. So you could easily come here at 8 I say to the 11 o'clock crowd, that's going to happen. Well, you could come here at 8 and still make 10 o'clock worship service over at Central Bible. We're also going to coincide not only our preaching series, but our community group notes, so that if you happen to be at one place or the other, you would still be prepared for your community group that week. Very interesting. Now, over the summer months, we we would prefer to just have our core team be there, lest we completely overwhelm the folks that are there in it, perhaps what would be an unkind way. So by fall, we'll let you know how that's going. Uh, Pastor Kevin and, and Yulia, who God graciously kicked, uh, brought home uh, from Russia just this time, wondering what God would do with them, he's going to be the lead pastor for this time. Uh, he'll be preaching there two to three weeks out of a month, and others of us will fill in other times in the month. And that's the way we're going to move forward at Central Bible. So be praying about that. Uh, Next Sunday, again, our team will will begin ministry there. They have not had any children for a while. So with those families that we are identifying as our core team, there will be children and there will be a Sunday school. And I think that's so exciting uh, for them. They're eager to to welcome our, our team there and we'll be involved with not only preaching, but leadership and some other things as we work together with them. Having said that, <clears throat> remember I mentioned two different churches who have reached out to us. Well, uh, one of those has been uh, taking care of some other things a little bit further behind. Friday of this week, I had another conversation with their pastor, and things became a lot more real as an opportunity, okay? So I'm not ready to identify their name yet. They're in a different part of town, Central Bible's North End. We're kind of here, and this other church is in a different part of town, but in a very similar place. Pastors uh, retiring and moving, leaving the area, and they're just not seeing a path forward, but would love to see gospel ministry continue in that community. So I had on my list to follow up with him, and before I could pick up the phone to do that, he called me just a couple days later and said, hey, uh, here's some things I'd love to talk about. So right now, they're having conversations as we are, but all of that means multiplied leadership, multiplied areas of ministry, um, multiplied people who don't mind preaching. We have one of our core values here, bringing on younger guys and, and training them in ministry and, and seeing God take them elsewhere. And some of those places may be right here in our community. So would you be praying about Central Bible and unnamed church, uh, for the moment, unnamed? 
But I wanted to talk about it today, not only because of the ministry starting at Central Bible, but because this other situation could come our way quicker than you think. Just quicker than you think. I'll leave it at that. So anyway, heads up. Uh, We may come knocking and we may have more opportunities uh, to see the ministry of the gospel extend into this community. We haven't knocked on either of these doors. They have come this direction. And uh, so I'm, I'm just fascinated to see what God will do and who he'll raise up to help us. So there you go. And your Bibles are open to Isaiah 60. That's called multitasking. You guys are amazing at it. We get to step into God's word. And I had you open your Bibles first because really this is one of the core functions of our church. It's, it's the backbone of it all. And it's, it's what, what is needed all the way through our community is God's word opened up and, and loved by his people and listened to and followed and, and, and believed and obeyed. So really, to, to the degree we can export that elsewhere, wonderful. We want to do it. But this morning, as you, as you get oriented to the sermon notes and so on, you're, you want to be aware we're, we're moving into a part of Isaiah where we're, we're going to move beyond the chapters on judgment and difficulty and God's people, in fact, heading into captivity, all of those elements. Last week, 59, uh, a big chapter on repentance, the kind of repentance God loves, the kind of quasi-repentance he doesn't. But, but today then, with 60, there's a different tone There is, and it's going to continue through the end of the book. We'll finish up Isaiah at the end of June. We have some more work to be done in the chapters ahead, but but today, just one chapter. But the tone is different, and you're going to notice that right away. We have some good Bible study to do, and I know that you are ready to go. So I want to pray for us, and we'll roll up our sleeves and get into the text. So join me, please, as we invite God's help. Our Father, as we... Open the word of God again today, how we delight in doing this. We delight in you, our God, and the word of God. Thank you for giving us the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible scriptures that give us your mind and point us to you. And how we thank you for this as one of our core values and one of the things that we delight to do week after week after week. So would you help us now in today's text? Just capture our hearts and our imaginations with your word and, and drive us, just pull us toward you as we long to know you better, long to know you more. So help us now here in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as always, on your sermon notes, you have some words of review that will take you through the past uh, few weeks and so on, even back beyond that, reminding you of what we're studying and why. A little paragraph called Today's Text says a couple of things about where we're going today. This chapter, chapter 60, verses 1 to 22, we're heading toward this unfolding view of a glorious future, future redemption uh, for God's people. And I'm going to read verses 1, 2, 3 in just a moment. And you see the the outline there in front of you. Uh, But after one, two, and three, I want you to notice the words specifically that are here and and pick up on the the tone. As as the words come to us, it's just something different taking place as we come to chapter 60 and move ahead. So let's hear God's word. Chapter 60, one, two, and three. We read this. Arise, shine, For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Okay, I'll stop there. That's like an introduction to what's coming, not only in this chapter, but I think in what follows as well. But there's a Instead of of rebuke or judgment, there's light and there's glory being spoken of here. Now, those concepts I I put on your study notes here represent biblical themes that run from Genesis to Revelation. I think as we study the Bible, it's really important that we know that the Bible is not just a random collection of books. People didn't just get a bunch of old books and shove them together and say, well, that'll work. Well, not at all. Uh, From Genesis to Revelation... 
God's word is a unified whole telling one big story of redemption. Genesis, you might say at the beginning, uh, eternity past, sometimes we call that, all the way through the story of God's work in Israel, preparing to send a Messiah. Then into the New Testament, Messiah Jesus comes, and on the way, all the way through the book of Revelation into eternity future. But the Bible is telling a story, and there are, there are themes that unify, that move through from Genesis to Revelation. And so, here are some. And I, I would feel terrible if we didn't think about it. So light, light is one of these. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Man, what's going on here? The contrast between light and darkness it shows up in verse 2. And again, the light in verse 3, your light heading to the nations. Well, if you think about light for a moment in its biblical context, you'll quickly remember the book of Genesis that begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, empty, and darkness moved on the surface of the deep. And God said... Let there be light. And amazingly, there was light. And it was not the light of the sun or the moon, was it? Every now and then, people who uh, wrap their minds around things say, but how can that be? The sun and the moon don't show up till day four. And sometimes people say that kind of thinking, see, there's a big inconsistency in the Bible. And my answer back is, you haven't read the whole thing, have you? But I say it gently. Because at the end of the book, in Revelation 22, you find a world again without the light of the sun and the moon. And what gives it light then? Well, the glory of God. The glory of God gives it light. So at the beginning, God says, let there be light. And there was. That's not a problem. The glory of God filling his budding creation. Now, moving along, just to grab a couple of moments, God was leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness. You remember how he did that? Cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Light, light showing up. The psalm writer who says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You work through some of the prophets talking about times of darkness. In those times of darkness, the light of Christ shows up, of course, even in prophetic form. You come to the New Testament. Uh, Jesus famously said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God's people are called to be light in a dark place. Gospel of John plays on that theme a lot. If you just read that book, Thinking Light and Darkness, you notice it all over the place in John's writings, First John as well. And then, of course, as I mentioned, on into the future, the glory of God lights his eternal home, not with the sun or the moon, but with the glory of God that lights the place. It's interesting when you think about some of these things. Our sun uh, is, a, is, is pretty impressive for all of us. Uh, many of us heard young when we're outside, we look up at the sun and somebody adult around us says to us, don't look at that. Don't stare at the sun. You're going to burn your eyes. Your corneas. And, they, and it's true. You shouldn't gaze at the sun for very long. We're not built for it. Follow me on this. The light of the sun is too much for these physical bodies if you just gazed at it. How much more? The light of the glory of God. More on that as we move on in just a minute here. But the light of the glory of God far surpasses the light of our physical sun. Our, our physical sun, of course, uh, is, is pretty impressive, meaning it's, it's eight minutes and 20 seconds away in terms of speed of light. You know that if the sun clicked off, you wouldn't know it for eight minutes and 20 seconds? You'd have that amount of time to run for, well... I don't know where you'd go, but if the sun quit, you got eight minutes and 20 seconds to call everybody you know and tell them you love them. Something like that. So it's, but, but, but our sun is not the biggest, is it? There are others, uh, astronomers tell us, that there are bigger suns than ours in some of the, the vast expanse that God created. But even our, our reasonably sized, uh, sized sun is too much for these physical bodies. Okay, light, shift quickly. The glory of God, another theme. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The glory, this glory, his glory will be seen upon you. Verse two, wow, the glory of God is a massive theme running rich and deep. Genesis all the way through the end of the book. And it shows up here as well. You'll remember the glory of God in creation as Job describes the sons of God singing for joy at his majesty in creation. You remember the moment in the book of Exodus, following God giving the, the, the ten words, ten commandments, Mount Sinai. Remember when they were shattered because God's people weren't doing so well? Remember, 
is either Moses or Charles Heston, I forget. But I think it's Moses in the real book who smashes the tablet, symbolizing he's not just mad, he's, it's broken. The law, I just got down here and these are already broken. Starting with number one, idolatry. I just left, look what you're doing. So broken, the 10 commandments, but following on its heels, God says to Moses, uh, you should go, keep going and take you to the promised land. And God says, I'm not going to be among you. And Moses says, whoa, stop. If you won't go among us, I'm not going. He pleads for God, no, go, go with us, be among us. And Moses says in that context, show me your glory. Very interesting. You can read this Genesis, or Exodus 33, 34, mainly verse, uh, chapter 33 here. Uh, show me your glory. And this is the place where God says, Moses, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And my glory will pass by. You'll see a little bit. Because if I showed you the full display of my glory, you would not live. So please get a hold of this. The glory of God in its in its uh, undimmed expression would be too much for these physical bodies, these eyes, these bodies. You would die, God says in Exodus 33. So, so God's glory we see glimpses of now, but, but on the day when you, as a child of God, finish your life here, and this body that you have, that you inhabit, it stays here, doesn't it? It's called death. This, these bodies are made for this planet they're not made for eternity in their present form. These bodies could not handle the full display of the glory of God. And so these bodies stay here. Day of resurrection, new body, I understand, made, made for more, made for more. But in his presence, we'll be able to see the, the undimmed glory that is his. Glory, what is that? Blazing brightness, purity, holiness. Uh, the Old Testament word kavod, it speaks of weightiness or the um, solemnity. It, 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 it's hard to capture it all, but the glory of God on full display. We've seen it in Isaiah. We saw it in Isaiah 6. Remember this? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Train of his robe filled the temple. The angels cried, holy, 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 thrice holy. The display of the glory of God. And then you move toward New Testament. And of course, you see glimpses of the glory of God in Jesus, don't you? We beheld his glory, John says, Gospel of John. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see the glory of God exegeted in him. Then you move on. Oh, my goodness. Places we could stop along the way. Final end of that tour. Again, book of Revelation. You come to the end. That, that, that eternal destiny of God's people, the presence of God, so described Revelation 21 and 22, the, the presence of the glory of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Wow. Full display of the glory of God. And, and in that heavenly setting, you able to see it. And so I, I just find these themes, beauty I reference, beauty shows up in verse 7, beauty shows up in verse 9, beauty shows up again, oh my goodness, where is it? <laughs> I read it earlier, there it is, it's in verse 13 as well, beauty, 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 these themes, the beauty of God, uh, for God in the tabernacle, the temples, and of course on into eternity, beauty, biblical themes. Okay, now, uh, in this room there are two types of people. Let me define them, and I'll take the next question here. There are two types of people here, okay? I've been told since then that there are three, but I'm going to go with two. There are some of you who are big-picture people. What you do when you study the Bible, not picking on anybody today, both groups are fine, and you can stay, but group A tends to be big-picture, meaning you say, okay, a lot of this confuses me. Just tell me this. In the end, does, does it turn out okay? I mean, do we get to be with God forever? That's all I need. All right, so, so sum it up and let's go. And that's you. Then there are others of you who are, uh, let's say, cap uh, category B. Uh, you're the people that say, hmm, well, when it comes to the study of prophetic literature, I really need to know whether you're infralapsarian or supralapsarian, because I think this really affects your eschatological view, ecclesiology, certainly, and soteriology. Which one are you? 
Okay, you see the difference between the two. First one says, I, I can't see, I mean, the weeds, just leave it alone. And there are others of you saying, my goodness sakes, I want to know more details. Tell me specifically when this will be. Well, okay. Both of you are in the room. And I see the difference. Did you know that? I can see it often as I watch people. Some people are kind of going, okay, the details. Now you're not looking at your watch anymore. You just got a text on your smartphone or, or smartwatch or something. But it's okay. You're just not captured by the details. We're going to do both today. Both groups should be happy. Just be patient if it's the time for the other group. But here's, here's my question. This steps from the big picture. We'll comment more on that in a minute. It steps towards some of the details. To whom is the text speaking? Verses 1, 2, and 3. When it says you, arise, shine, for your light has come, is, it, is, it, is this like you? If your name is Mike, you can put Mike, Mike's, Mike's day has come. And Mike, wow, this is a great day for Mike. Is it written to Mike? Well, no, who's you? Who's you? Who's your? Who's the plural here? This is, this is stuff of Bible study. To whom is the text speaking specifically? Now, uh, I'm going to tell you ahead of time some of the, the direction from which I come so that you know and can, can put me in a category and either agree or disagree, because there are areas here you can agree and disagree and still end up in heaven, all right? So there are some people who read and study this and see in the you and your and in the chapter that follows, see the literal nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They, they would see in the chapters that unfold a time period that some would call the millennium. They would see unfolded in the pages of scripture an event called the rapture of the church. There are others who see those details less or, for example, here would say, I'm not so sure it's the nation of Israel. I think this is probably God's people overall. Or as you come to the New Testament, um, I think the church kind of replaces Israel, which you've heard me say I do not agree with. Um, So there are different perspectives here, good people on both sides who've written books on these things, okay? I come from the perspective that this is the literal nation of Israel, and I still believe that there's a millennium, and I still believe there's a rapture of the church. So I'm just telling you where I'm at. In our church, we have people who go, yeah, but, and welcome here. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Those aren't required issues that you agree with Jay on at least everything. Jesus, we should agree on him. Some of the other details, uh, we, we would line out a bit different, but I tell you all that so you'll know the direction that I'm coming from today, okay? I see this as addressing the actual nation of Israel at a time when God is, a, is looking at them as moving from, from a time of difficulty and darkness into a whole new day. I think ultimately looking ahead to millennial kingdom, I do think that, and on into the eternal state. I'll, I'll show you where I see that shift taking place So my second bullet point here then, to whom is the text speaking? I think it's speaking to the nation of Israel, literally. And um, secondarily, God's people. I think there's certainly elements of this that would affect God's people in general. But I see it speaking to the nation of Israel. What time frame, if you want to know when? Well, I'm not entirely sure when anything happens. Um, I'm still figuring out what today is like. But I do think there's a millennium. And I think some of these things could find themselves being fulfilled there. Okay? So... That's, that's what I want you to see. My first heading here is, I think, the big picture moment. <clears throat> this big picture, I think, runs through the Bible, and it's going to be here in the text we're looking at. Today's brokenness is not forever. And if you're in group A or group B, it doesn't matter to me. I really want you to, I really want you to see that big issue. Future redemption affects us now. Today's brokenness is not forever. And if you perhaps are newer to Bible study or newer to, to this kind of a discussion, I really want you to hear that part so loud and clear that you can't miss it. That the Bible describes a day when what is broken now will be behind us. It describes a day when this creation that is groaning right now with war and turmoil and sickness and fear and, and broken relationships and all kinds of things, describes a day when those things that are broken are, are made well. So please know that. That what, what hurts today will not always hurt. Of course, the Bible says you need to trust Christ. He is the only one who can make sure you're there on that day. See, he's the only one who can open that door and have you be part of God's family. So that on that great day when things are healed and made well, that you're going to be there. So please know that. 
But, but the big picture, today's brokenness is not forever. Turn the page. I want to go on your sermon notes. I want to go to verses 4 through 18, and I want to look at some details. How will the future be different? And again, I'm going to take this from the standpoint of the nation of Israel, and you'll hear me comment on that. As we do often in preaching larger sections, I'm going to read part of this, specifically verse 4 down through verse, oh, I decided verse 14, and um, make a number of observations here about differences for the future. So hear God's word again, Isaiah 60, starting verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. And your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you will see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify, beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope in me. Often that's a term for nations that are further away. The coastlands shall hope in me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you for in my wrath I struck you, I think Babylonian captivity here, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Imagine. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet Glorious, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And on down through verse 18, similar expressions. What in the world is going on? May I identify a couple of things that I believe fit in this text? Okay. First of all, in verse 4. And in verse 9, you find a reference here to the sons and daughters returning, coming back. Now, certainly after the captivity in Babylon, there was a return, wasn't there? We've talked about this in our preaching as we talk about Old Testament history. Uh, People of Israel were taken away captive into Babylon and came back after how many years? 70, good, gold star for all of you who answered that. 70 years, of course, that's recorded in the prophet Isaiah, sorry, Jeremiah. And you'll remember that Daniel the prophet had read the book of Jeremiah. And so when he was in captivity in Babylon, he had the book of Jeremiah and he read it and said, 70 years and he decreed for my people. And he made this a matter of prayer. He said, Lord, it says here in the Bible, Prophet Jeremiah, 70 years are determined for my people. I checked, it's almost time. So let's go, let's go home. He just read the word of God to to God and said, let's do this. So there was a return under Cyrus because of his decree at the end of that 70 year period, back to the land, indeed. So there was a regathering and that lasted, uh, okay, all kinds of other political turmoil till about 70 AD when the Romans came in and wiped things out. Nation of Israel, uh, the temple, second temple, gone, and, and sadness set in. Okay, A.D. 70 until, who remembers? Some of you were alive in 1948. Others of you weren't. I wasn't. I am much younger than that. But some of you remember. Uh-huh. Some of you remember May 14th, 1948. Who would have thought from 70 A.D. 
to, well, our general time, May 14th, 1948, when the nation of Israel was rebirthed. Who would have thought? And what began to happen at that time? Sons and daughters coming from afar, the nations giving up those people, going back to the land. That was a big deal in those years that followed 1948. Now, do I think that that's the end of it? Well, no, because I still see an element of faith here. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 describe a return uh, of, of people of Israel to the Lord, not just to the land. But I think very clearly, I mean, my goodness sakes, people in 1948 who said, who would have thought this? What's the answer to that? Well, everybody who read their Bible would, would have thought that, uh, who read their Bible and said, I think it means that literally, as opposed to, well, I don't think it means it literally. I think it's just a figure of speech. I think it means that literally they were going to come back, and they did. So there was an initial return, and then there was another return, of course, when the nation of Israel was formed. And I think there's a coming day when God's people in mass, people of Israel, will turn to the Lord. Again, I look at Book of Romans for this. Uh, 9, 10, and 11, I don't see any other way around that. I think that's exactly what it's describing. So, so a return, okay? Now, what else? Verses 10 to 18, as I read part of that, and it's repeated in the latter parts, uh, uh, Israel living in unparalleled prosperity and security. Did you notice, even in the previous verses, the earlier section, did you notice how many times it talks about the wealth of the nations? Do you see this in verse 5? The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Gold and silver, verse 6, that sounds nice. Man, uh, again, verse 9, silver and gold with them. Great, bring it. Verse 11, people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, and on and on. More stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Instead of bronze, verse 17, I'll give you gold. Wow. The wealth of the nations, a time of unparalleled prosperity and security with the help of foreign enemies, the help of foreign previous enemies coming and doing homage to the people of Israel. How, how interesting is this? Have you seen this yet? Well, not quite, no. So I think there are yet elements from Isaiah 60 that are yet to be fulfilled So you who study your Bible, if you don't have a millennial time period in your eschatological frame, your future frame, you do need to account for some of those things happening sometime. Because it's the word of God, and as we'll see in a minute, he says, I am the Lord. Period. That's what I'll do. So you have to account for that somewhere in your understanding of future things. And you may certainly have thought of that. A time that Israel returns to the land, a time that Israel thrives in unparalleled prosperity and security. And then you notice my, my key word section here that describes this time period. I think these, these just leap out of the text in their concept. Security, safety, wealth, glory, beauty, respect, majesty, and genuine saving faith. I think all of those come from the text and make you say, when and how will this all turn out? But I am confident that it will. So that's how I think the future looks different. Now, I want to to talk a bit about prophecy. This may help you a bit, and I I think these are good things for us to, to think about together in dealing with prophetic literature. If you've been with us for a while, you've heard me say similar things in preaching, okay? When you deal with biblical prophecy, very, very often you have events that are separated by time, crunched together, compressed, so that you have a a near event and a far event that look back to back, but they're not. Now, uh, I think the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew does this, weaves together several things from the future, and if you're trying to go linear like you do, when you think most of us go linear, what year will that be, 2025 or 2026 or what year? Just tell me. And we think linear. I think often, I think all of the discourse weaves together several things on purpose. And we struggle to unpack it all. Okay. Now, an example of this that I think is more on the forefront of our minds and here in front of us in the text. If you look at the opening verses of chapter 61... We have mentioned this several times in our preaching. My goal, of course, in our preaching ministry here is if you stick around, you'll get into different parts of the Bible. You'll understand how to read the Bible because you'll get exposed to different types of biblical literature and how to deal with them. So that's why I like to take time on this. In our preaching, both at Christmas time, this came up, and uh, several years ago when we preached our way through Luke and Acts together, you'll remember a time in the story of Jesus as Luke, the writer, tells it where Jesus went up to a synagogue and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah 
And he opened it up and he began to read. He began to read Isaiah 61. You know it because it's quoted in Luke and you look in the Bible and it goes, well, there it is. He's reading Isaiah 61 and Jesus does something that startled everybody. He started reading Isaiah 61 uh, and, and he quit in the middle of verse two. He quit. So he read the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to give, to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who've been bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped. He didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped mid, what looks to us like mid-sentence, rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, and, and Luke's gospel says the eyes of everyone was upon him. It was electric. And he said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down. Now, what in the world? Because Isaiah 61 goes on to say the next line, as I said, the day of vengeance of our God. Wow, that was a different coming. Jesus read the part that applied to his first coming. He didn't read the part that applies to his second coming. So these two in Isaiah 61 are pressed together. So you wouldn't know this that one is a first coming, one is a second coming, except that Jesus drew the line in the middle and said, first coming, hold it, wait for it, wait for it. Not time yet. And he sat down. And I'm saying to us today, as you read prophetic literature in the Bible, often it's that way where you'll say, wait a minute, is this the, which coming is this and when is this? And there's a compressing of of prophecies. So it looks like one flows right into the other, but there's actually in God's economy, time in between. He knows exactly what he's doing. So I think, I think when I look at Isaiah 60, I, I find myself wondering about all of that. An initial return under Cyrus, uh, Ezra, people, Nehemiah wall, or yeah, Ezra temple, Nehemiah walls, rebuilding, and then another coming, 1948, and I think a yet future time when, those, when God's people, Israel, will turn to the Lord. And I read that, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Oh boy, so group A, group B. Group A, the big picture people are saying, move on. Group B are saying, come on, give me a little more, right? I know how it is. I know how it is. Well, I think those details serve us well. I want to go then to verses 19 to 22. Your sermon notes say 21. That was a mistake on my part. Uh, Verse 22. So Isaiah 60, I want to read this, and I, I think there's another shift here that you'll want to Think about with me. So verse 19, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Period. Okay, what is this? What is this? Now, on your sermon notes, you see the direction that I take it. I see this shifting toward the final day, the eternal day. I see that because of its similarity to the book of Revelation chapter 22. It is, it is beyond my uh, estimation that John somehow, as he wrote uh, chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, that he didn't have this in mind because they, they weave together so carefully. So the book of Revelation speaks of a time, by the way, for your good, I should mention the book of Revelation is, is not revelations, as we often say. It's not multiple revelations, it's one. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells you this. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Sometimes casually we say, well, let's look in revelations. Now, I get it. I'm not going to yell at you. But chapter 1, verse 1 tells you. It's, it's the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The whole book is about him, his ultimate triumph in the eternal day that he brings. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not about the events first. It's about him. So that's important to know, I think, again, in our understanding of the Bible. 
So in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, 21, of course, I saw the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow, beauty, glory. And stepping into chapter 22, the eternal day, where it talks about the sun, the moon, not needed for light anymore in that eternal space because the Lord God himself will be its light. The glory of God will light the eternal home that we'll call heaven. The glory of God. So there again, God's glory moving from Genesis, stopping here in Isaiah 60 and coming to its fulfillment in the book of Revelation at the end. The glory of God is what lights up our eternal home. So the sun and moon, that's what I'm pointing out. In, in what we just read here, verse 19 says it, verse 20 says it again, in case you didn't read carefully in verse 19. No, the Lord will be your glory. You won't need the sun or the moon. The glory of God will light up our eternal habitation. Can you imagine this? And, and in that place, you as God's people, you know Christ is your Savior. You'll be there that day in a, in a new body, able to see in a way that you never could see here the full display of the glory of God. Can you imagine this? I mean, can you even begin to think about what it would be like to see the the full-on glory of God that fills heaven? No, I I don't think we'll show up at heaven and immediately begin to run around and say hi to everybody. I think we will be so struck with the glory of the God who owns the place. We will be in awe of him. We might say hi to some people along the way, but I don't think that's first. I think the first is that the the sheer majesty of God filling the place. Glory. So here, Isaiah says, you won't be needing a sun anymore. You won't need a moon anymore because where you're going, there's a different source of light. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And I love the last line in verse 20. Can we talk about that for a minute? Your days of mourning shall be ended. What do you think about that? Hmm. Sometimes we think about mourning, and properly so, when we say goodbye to loved ones. Some of you are mourning in that sense. In the last weeks or months or years, you have said goodbye to people that today you still miss terribly. I know. There's a mourning that is that attends to grief and loss. There are other kinds of mourning. There's, there's a mourning that comes from living in a fallen world when we face fear and difficulty in relationships that break and crack and sink. When we hear wars and rumors of wars and we wonder about the effects on us, when we hear of diseases that are so close and are, we're in danger and what do we do? When we hear about the price of gas and wonder how we're going to make it, Economic woes, political things. What are we going to do in 2024? Oh, my goodness sakes. Your days of mourning will not last forever. Do you know this? The things that, that, that weigh us down and bring us tears here in the word of God. Your days of mourning shall be ended I, I, I'm just captured by that. Uh, years ago, when I was a youth pastor, there was a moment that, it's funny, it was so, so, I didn't see it coming, and it was so symbolic of life and this that I've remembered it many times since. Um, I, I, as a youth pastor, uh, did one of those crazy things where you load your church bus with kids and drive it to Mexico. And this was the big yellow bus, you know, five on the floor. First is a granny gear, so you start in second. It has air conditioning. You put all the windows down and go 64 because it has a governor on it. You can't go 65. It doesn't matter. You just can't go 65. It just doesn't let you. So you're going to go all the way to Mexico in this big yellow bus. And it's full of kids and stuff. And you do this time down. It's wonderful. Just great. We had some adventures. You know, belts came off of the engine here and there and some other problems and brake. Boy, something's not right back here. And you go pay this guy 20 bucks to fix your brakes. And I did. And that's what I paid him. I asked the going rate, and it was 20 bucks. So this was great, <laughs> 20 bucks. Um, but coming home, there were more challenges and kids getting sick and throwing up and uh, it, more stuff on the bus and breakdowns. And, and you come back in, finally, it's, fine. it's 18 days. It was an 18-day trip. It was. It was an 18-day trip. I know, I know. What was I thinking? So you come back in. 
you come back in and I'm driving the bus and you see all the parents up there saying, oh, I'm busy thinking they're alive. I brought, the, I came back with the same number of children and <laughs> here, I think they're well now, but here's the, here's the moment. Here's what I'm thinking. There's the moment when you pull the bus up, you get it up to the sidewalk and you know, air brakes. And it was so visceral to me. We did it. We're home. I almost started crying right then. That, was, that sound was, carried so much emotion. We did it. Thank you, Lord. Get off the bus. It was, it was, oh, it was kind of like that. And, and I'm telling you the truth, I didn't get up. I just wanted to sit there in my happy place. And everybody else, get, yeah, open the back. Go, flee. I had people there to clean the bus. It was great. I just had to get off. But I, I'm just saying this. Here's, there's that moment. I wonder what that is like when this is going to be fulfilled. Your days of mourning shall be ended. What will be that moment? Whether through death, when you finish a breath here and take your next breath there. Is that it? Where you go, I'm here. Oh, buddy. This is great. As people you left behind weep, and the glory of God fills your space. What is that? What will that be like? Will it be the return of Christ for his own? First Thessalonians 4, when we go together, we go, hi, as we go, is that it? I don't know what that, that will be, but I know this. There will be a day when your days of mourning shall be ended. I know that. How do I know it? Because it says it in the Bible. It says it in the Bible, and I happen to believe this, every piece of it. And I hope you do too. Your, your days of mourning shall be ended. I hope you know Christ so that you're ready for that day. If you look with me at what is to come here now, um, I'm going to go to the part called responding to God's word. I think that final section moves from time into eternity. But the final section there, God wants you and me to know that the difficulties of today are not forever. And I give you a list here of things that sometimes bring us stress and tears. You could add to that. I know you could. I could have given you a couple extra lines here for you to add your own things that bring you anguish and tears. I'm just saying one day those will all be in the rearview mirror. So, so, so know this, please. The eternal day, capital D, the day, the day of the Lord, the ultimate, the final day. So I, I go to one more text, and then I'll be done, I promise. Romans chapter 8, uh, in this section called, How Does This Affect You? Could I just give you three ways this affects you? If you believe that future redemption is, is really going to happen, you, if you believe this, you know Christ is your Savior, you believe that brokenness today is not forever, and you're going to be there someday because of Jesus here, here are some ways that this should affect you, the way you live. Well, first of all, in Romans 8, which is a wonderful chapter about this, creation groaning. You find that in verse 22. Creation is groaning. We're groaning. Creation is, is suffering. All of creation. It's what we watch in the news every single day. But you come down to verses 24 and 25. Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. I went to the second line. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with, with patience. See, the things we see, we don't wait for with hope because they're here. But when we hope for what we don't see yet, we wait for it with patience. We're saying, Lord, bring this day. Bring this ultimate day. Bring the final day. Do it. And we wait with hope and patience because he said he would and he will. Next, also here in Romans, back up to verse 18. Paul says, for I, for I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. You, if you've been around a while, you've heard me remind you of something here as I surely will again as God gives opportunity the, the word picture that Paul draws on here when he speaks of comparing, it's the picture of the old-fashioned scale. When he, says, when he says what he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth weighing against, is the idea. In other words, if you were to take all of your difficulties and sadness and brokenness and hurt, all of it, and plunk it on one side of those scales, 
the heavy side would immediately go down, wouldn't it? But if you were then to take the glory that, is, that awaits you as a child of God and put it on the other side, the weightiness of God's glory would far outweigh all the difficulties and struggles that are yours. It's not worth comparing, Paul says. It's not worth comparing. Now, please know, God never minimizes your pain. He never says, oh, come on, wipe those tears. That's not such a big thing. He never does that. So the issue isn't to to minimize your pain. It's to maximize the weightiness of the coming glory of God and the surety of it. So Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth weighing against the glory that will one day be revealed to us. Indeed. And then he goes on to talk about that. So I'm saying perspective here. A perspective as I carry the load that is mine, as you carry the load that is yours, the awareness that we will not carry this load forever. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes later on, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is, is, is wearing down, wearing away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for, he says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison as we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. He he says there in verse 17, 2 Corinthians 4, it, it, it produces for us an eternal weight of glory. And again, he draws on that weightiness of glory, the Old Testament word, the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Wow. Oh, Lord, give me that perspective. And you, and you. And then final, finally, Revelation 22 and verse 20. The Apostle John, after writing and seeing that whole revelation of Jesus Christ, I love how he ends, the aged Apostle John at this time, next to the last verse in the Bible, he says, even so, come, come, Lord Jesus, come, come. Some people have prayed that the last couple of years for a whole variety of reasons. Now's good. This would be all right. Wrap it up. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Until the day we see him, he will give grace for us to live for him in the meantime. Every opportunity we have to serve him will take. And we still say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, come, come. I hope you know Christ. I hope you know Christ. To know him is to be ready for all of this to come. To not know him is to be unprepared for everything we have talked about today. Starting point number one, trusting Christ as your savior from sin. Believing that he died on the cross for all the stuff you've done you shouldn't and all the good stuff you should have done that you didn't. Trusting him as your savior from sin. I'd like to pray for us. Would you stand with me as we close our time in God's word? Father, I thank you that you know where each of us is at with you. There are no mysteries in this, in your eyes. Uh, Other people can't see. I certainly can't see the heart of anybody, but you do. And you know where there's genuine faith in Christ, saving faith. And I pray that for anyone here or all those who are listening later to our morning, that where there are those who are hearing and listening but have never, never trusted Christ, that you would so prompt them and draw them in a way that they would respond in saving faith, trusting Christ as their Savior from sin. I pray for that. Father, only you can do that, and I ask you to do it. Accomplish that new birth. Father, do this, do this. Draw all of us closer to you. Give us hope. Give us joy as we believe you. Give us strength for this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.